Good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is where we will be together. If you are new with us, we want to say a special welcome to you uh, and let you know how glad uh, we are, how glad I am that you've chosen to worship with us uh, this morning on a nice, chilly Sunday. Uh, It is a great day to get to gather together and to worship King Jesus. It's an exciting day at Central, not just because I think every Sunday is exciting when you get to gather with the Lord's people and lift high his name, but also, uh, as Logan and Raina mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, that in our next worship hour uh, is the official launch uh, of Iglesia Central, or Central en Espanol, our uh, Spanish campus. And so we're excited to see uh, all that the Lord is going to do through that ministry. He's already doing uh, so much. Pastor Josh and I, we were praying together with a couple of our deacons this morning before our services, and we're talking about what the Lord's already doing, and uh, here in just a couple of weeks, we, are, we already have two people who are going to baptize, who have come to faith uh, through the ministry of Central and Espanol, and so I'm excited about that, absolutely, I hope you are as well, um, and I hope that you'll make plans to be here on February 4th, uh, that Sunday evening for our core rally, uh, where we are going to come together as one church in two languages. And we're going to sing songs in English, and we are going to sing songs in Spanish, or hum songs in Spanish, whatever, uh, whatever you might want to do. But I hope that you'll make plans to be here and to celebrate uh, what the Lord's doing, not just there, uh, but here in our church. Well, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. As we uh, turn our our attention to Luke 9 and uh, to this passage, uh, I wonder if someone asked you, what do you know about Jesus, what you might say? Or maybe they might ask you, what is your favorite thing about Jesus? What, what might your answer be? Maybe you would say, well, uh, Jesus is righteous and he is holy and he is gracious and, and all of those things. And all of those things would be true. Uh, maybe you'd say that he's a friend of sinners. We've seen that uh, as we've walked through this series of looking at uh, Jesus eating in the gospel of Luke. Maybe you'd say, well, well, he's slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and all of those things are true. And over the last couple of weeks, one of the things that, as I've spent some time in the Gospel of Luke and also in the Gospel of John, one of the things that has just stuck out to me uh, that I've really grown to, to love and appreciate about Jesus is that he's intentional. Right? There's nothing that happens in the Gospels. There's, there's nothing that happens that is an accident, that is a coincidence, that Jesus is intentionally working in every area and in every way through his ministry. You know, sometimes I think we kind of have like a, a Bob Ross theology where, well, that was just a happy little accident, right? Well, no, that's not what's happening in the Gospels at all. These aren't coincidences. These aren't happy little accidents. No, what this is, is this is Jesus working to show his power, but then also, as we'll see this morning, to reveal his identity, to show us what we need to know about Jesus, what it is that we need to see and be reminded of and learn about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And so we're going to see that here in Luke chapter 9 this morning. So look with me here at Luke chapter 9. As we look at verses 10 down through 17, let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious and inspired and an errant and wonderful word. Starting in verse 10, the Holy Spirit says to us this. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and 
spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we, we confess together that you are wonderful. Father, we, we acknowledge that you are mighty and you are powerful. And Father, we, we want to experience your power this morning. Lord, we, we want to feel the wonder that we should as we look at your word. So Father, we, we pray that you would work this morning for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look here at Luke 9, we see this idea that Jesus is intentional, but we see, we see this truth, that, that Jesus meets our needs with his power, not our resources. Jesus meets our need with, with his power, not our resources. And as we, we look at this passage, we, we look at this scene from the ministry of Jesus, this familiar, well-known scene, and we see it's got three moves in it. So the first move is this, we see this great need. There's a great need. So Jesus, he's, he's good at creating situations where we can see his power and our need for him. That's what Jesus does, and that's what he's doing here. He, he's created a situation. He, he's created a circumstance where his power can be seen and our need or our dependence can be highlighted. Now, what's happening here in Luke 9 is his disciples have just returned. If you were to jump back to, to the beginning of Luke 9, verses 1 through 6, you would see where Jesus sends out his disciples. He tells his disciples to go, they're going to cast out demons, they're going to heal, and they are going to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he does this, or he tells them to do this, not just so that they will go do some cool things, but the reason they're going to cast out demons and the reason that they're going to provide healing is because it's going to authenticate that the kingdom of God has come. It's going to prove that the kingdom of God is here. And so he has sent the disciples out. And now where we pick up, they have come back and they are anxious. They are excited to tell him all that they have done. So look at verse 10. Luke writes, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now they've come back and they're, they're excited about what they've done. They're excited to tell Jesus the stories of how they had cast out demons and how they had cured people and how they had proclaimed the kingdom of God. They're excited to, to let him in on what they have done. And, and Jesus, we get this picture here that Jesus wants to hear about it. Right? He wants to hear about what they have done, but he knows this. He knows that they either are exhausted from being on the road and, and doing the ministry that they have been doing, or they are riding an adrenaline wave and they will soon come crashing down. 
right? That they will soon need a break. They'll, they'll soon need a rest. And, and so Jesus, he takes them, and, and it says here in Luke 10 that he takes them and they withdrew apart. They're going to go privately to this, this village called Bethsaida. Now, what we know is that they go to the village called Bethsaida, but they really go to a place outside of the village. What the passage we'll read here in just a minute says, to an unfrequented place. Bethsaida was kind of out of the way. It was a smaller fishing village. And Jesus says, well, we're going to go outside of that. And it's like asking someone where they live, and they say, I live right outside of Osteen, right? Like, oh, so you live in the woods, right? That's, that's where you live. And so Jesus, he, he withdraws apart to this, this unfrequent and this desolate place. And what he's doing is he's, he's looking to give them rest. But what happens here, at least from our vantage point, is it seems like, or it looks like, things don't go according to plan. Look at verse 11. But the crowns learned it. They followed him, and he, he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So the, this crowd, these people, they find out that Jesus is gonna, he, he's going to Bethsaida. And if we want to give them the benefit of the doubt, they don't know why he's going. But they find out that Jesus is going, and they decide, we're going to go. We're going we're gonna to follow him. We want to hear from him. We want to experience his power. Jesus here, he's looking for rest, but the people want to hear from and experience his power. He, he doesn't tell them to come back later. He doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, give us a minute, give us a couple of hours and then come back. No, what does he do? He welcomes them. This would have been easy to send them away. Right? It would have been easy. No one would, have, no one would have blamed Jesus. No one would have batted an eye if he would have said, hey, I know you want to see this. I know you want to experience this, but, but give us a minute. Right? Give, us, give us a day. Give us the afternoon. A lot of times whenever I come home on, on Sunday afternoons, Anna knows that, hey, Ethan just needs a minute. Right? I need to not talk. I need to not touch. I need to not hear. Right? I, I just need to hear the Jaguar score again or something like that. I don't get that very much, right? It's a rough, it's a rough time. But that's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking to give the disciples uh, uh, some time to breathe and some time to rest. This group, this crowd comes. He could have sent them away, but instead he's moved by compassion. He's moved by compassion and he welcomes them. Now here's, here's what we learned about compassion is that oftentimes compassion is not convenient. But Jesus, what we learn about Jesus is he often does inconvenient things. That Jesus, he's moved by this compassion. And for us, we would love to say that whenever we are moved by compassion, we always act. We always move. But oftentimes, compassion doesn't come when we've planned for it. Because typically, we don't plan for compassion. The way that I plan my day is, is each morning, I get in the office, I have a notebook, and I write down the things that I need to do. My favorite part of the day is when I get to scratch off the things that I've done. In fact, typically when I get to the office, I will, I'll write down something just so that I can scratch it off, right? Something I've already done just so that I can scratch, right? Tell Anna hello, done it, scratched off, right? It, it, I just like to do that. You know what I don't ever put on my list is to show compassion, I don't ever put on my list random act of kindness. 
Because oftentimes, opportunities to show compassion, opportunities to display compassion, do not come when it is convenient for us. It comes whenever it is inconvenient. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's showing this compassion at an inconvenient time. What we see is we see the hospitality of Jesus to people and for people who need it and are looking for it. Now, for you and I, there's no lack of opportunity for us to show compassion today. I think sometimes we think about compassion and we, we think about compassion as these big acts, right? Or maybe when I think about compassion, I think about Compassion International. I think, I think about my, uh, the two kids that my family sponsors. There's no lack of opportunity for us to show compassion to the people who are close to us. Maybe it's the people who live with you. Maybe it's the people you work with, or, or maybe it's the people that you're around constantly. Or maybe it's people that you don't know and that you will never see again. There's no lack of opportunity to show compassion, but it typically doesn't happen when it's easier, when it's convenient. And yet we haven't been called to love when it's convenient. We've been called to practice hospitality when it's easy. We've been called to love and to live like Jesus. See, we've, we're mistaken or we're confused if we think that following Jesus is supposed to be convenient. At some point, we started to believe this lie or at least live with this lie that, that following Jesus was supposed to be easy. That following Jesus isn't really supposed to cost me anything. And, and the reason that we think that way is because too often we view following Jesus as something that we tack on to part of our life rather than something that controls our life. Right? And the, the gospels and the scriptures, whether it be the gospels or the, the epistles or the Old Testament, following the Lord's will is never easy and it's rarely convenient. And we know this. Right? We're familiar with passages like the one that comes later in Luke 9 to take up your cross and follow him or to die to yourself daily. But maybe when we think about taking up your cross and following Jesus or, or dying to yourself, maybe you think that that's, that's just really dramatic things, right? I take up my cross when I go on the mission trip to Africa. I take up my cross, I die to myself whenever I, I go on this mission trip or I do this thing or that thing. We're confused if we think it's only dramatic acts of discipleship. Instead, the regular pattern of following Jesus is not dramatic acts, but ordinary faithfulness, right? Ordinary, simple, regular faithfulness. Practicing compassion, showing love, that is not a big act of discipleship. That is a regular step of ordinary faithfulness. That's what you and I have been called to. We've been called to let love and compassion, in other words, to let Jesus infect our lives so that the way Jesus has infected our lives, it affects others. Not, not with these big, dramatic acts, but just regular, ordinary faithfulness. Maybe you're familiar with the name Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson wrote several books. Uh, if you've ever used or read the message, you can thank Eugene Peterson. But Eugene Peterson would, would talk about discipleship. He would talk about following Jesus. And he, he said that here, here's what discipleship is. Here's what following Jesus is. 
It is long obedience in the same direction. That it's not sprinting. It's not these spurts of faithfulness and then kind of cooling off. No, it's regular, ordinary life with Jesus. Regular, ordinary things. It's what Christians are called to do. Christians are called to ordinary faithfulness. When you say, well, Ethan, I want to see the Lord do some things. Right? I, I want to see the Lord work. Amen. I think every believer wants to see the Lord work. And that happens, that begins as we just follow him in simple ways with all of our life. And so there's this great need, this great need of these people, this crowd coming to Jesus and, and coming to his disciples. They wanna be with him. They wanna hear from him. They wanna experience his power. That story isn't in there. See, a great need gives way to a great problem. It gives way to this great problem. The, the story doesn't end with a needy crowd, but it keeps going. Look at verse 12. Now the day began to wear away. In other words, it started to get late. And the 12 came and said to him, said to Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. The disciples noticed something important. The day's wearing on, it's getting late. The, the people have, they haven't eaten anything apparently all day and the disciples have no way to feed them. Now, the, the disciples, it's easy to give them a hard time as you read the Gospels, right? They just get it wrong time after time after time, right? I, sometimes I, I feel like, man, Peter, come on, pay attention. And then I realize I am Peter, right? The, the disciples get it wrong time after time after time. But here, it looks like they're getting it right, right? They're moved by compassion. They want to care for the crowd. They say, Jesus, we, we don't have any food to give. But there was still a problem. They'd still missed something. They wanted to care for the crowd, but they had forgotten who Jesus was. They had forgotten who they were with. The lack of food is no surprise to Jesus. Jesus isn't sitting there healing people and teaching and doing all of that. And then Peter whispers in his ear, hey, Jesus, we're about out of food. And Jesus says, I knew I had forgotten something, right? That's not what Jesus does. No, you put yourself in that picture. You can imagine Peter coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we've got to send these people away. We don't have any food. And Jesus almost saying, I was wondering when you would notice. Right? I was wondering when you would when you would see, the disciples are surprised, but they shouldn't have been surprised. And they shouldn't have been surprised that Jesus was going to work in a wonderful way because the disciples had already seen Jesus do this same thing. So if you look back up to verse 3 of, of chapter 9, Jesus, he's sending out, he's commissioning the 12. And he says this, he says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Verse four, and whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet. It's a testimony against them. Jesus had sent the disciples and he had told them, don't take any money and don't take any food. Don't even take a change of clothes. You don't know how long you're gonna be gone for. Go, 
Don't, don't worry about how you will survive. Don't worry about how you will be provided for because Jesus is telling them, I'm going to provide for you. Right? I'm going to meet your need. And what does he do? He does it. He meets their need while they're out proclaiming the kingdom of God. Well, why would it be any different now? If he met the needs of the 12, why wouldn't he also meet the needs of the 5,000? Well, see, what's happening here is the disciples are showing what they really believe about Jesus. He can handle the small things, but the big things are a different story. I wonder if you and I are guilty of the same thing. That we think Jesus can handle the small situations, but for the big ones, he needs our wisdom. For the big ones, he needs our resources. But what Jesus is gonna show us here is that he meets our need not according to what we have, not according to who we are, not not with what we can offer. No, Jesus meets our need simply with his power. See, when Jesus is involved, he is always the hero. If Jesus is there, he is always going to be the hero. And so in verse 13, this problem, it comes to a head. Look at verse 13 with me. But he said, Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, there's 5,000 people here, more than that. What are we going to do? He says, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. So he, he tells the disciples to feed the people. They, they say they can't. We've got five loaves and two fish, and there's not a store around. In verse 12, it says that they are in a desolate place. Literally, it's an unfrequented place. This would be like us withdrawing to the Ocala National Forest, that we're gonna go, we're gonna spend some time. Suddenly, 5,000 people show up. There's nowhere to go, right? There's, there's no store anywhere near, and certainly not a store that can handle that kind of demand. So what's Jesus going to do? Here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to be Jesus, right? That's what he does, What does Jesus do? Jesus is always Jesus, right? He always shows up. He always provides. And so verse 14 says, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So there are 5,000 men. Now, most commentators believe that this number, uh, this didn't include women and children, it's 5,000 men. So when you add in women and children, it would not be difficult for this number to approach 20,000 very fast. So this crowd This is not a group of 50 or 100. It's not even a group of 500. This is a crowd of potentially 20,000 people who who need to be fed. And so Jesus gives specific instructions, and these instructions are, are important for us to see. He says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now that phrase, sit down, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks and we've looked at Luke 5 and Luke 7. This is actually a phrase that we have seen. But this phrase, there's something lost in translation here. So this phrase, sit down, we've seen that word used before. But when we've seen it before, the word has been translated as recline. Recline at table. It's a word that it, in this 
style of Greek, it's always used to speak of sitting down to eat. So what you have is you have this picture of Jesus welcoming people to a feast that he is going to host. You have Jesus welcoming all these people. In Luke 5, Jesus is welcomed to the table of a tax collector. In Luke 7, Jesus is welcomed to the table of a Pharisee. In Luke 9, Jesus welcomes anyone and everyone to the feast that he is going to host, to the feast that, that he is going to provide. Now, there's a great problem here. There's 5,000 men, 20,000 people, but they don't have enough food. What we see is that our greatest problems are often opportunities to see Jesus' power. Jesus did not lead the disciples or this crowd here to leave them to figure it out on their own. He has them here to demonstrate his power. Jesus didn't bring them here and and create this problem and and create this this issue to see how are they going to handle it. How are Peter's leadership skills? I wonder if James can handle this. No, he he brought them there to to show his power. He he didn't lead them there to to leave them on their own. No, he he has them there so they can see what he can do. And, And it works the same way today. Jesus doesn't call you and lead you to abandon you. He doesn't save you and then call you, instruct you to follow him and then say, figure out how to do it. Some of us are walking through some rough times right now. There are people in this room who the the last 72 hours have felt like hell on earth. There, There are people in this room who the last week, they're not sleeping much because it's been rough. Maybe feel like this last year has been difficult. And through it all, you're wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? What we have to remember is that Jesus doesn't bring us to the valley to leave us. He doesn't bring us to the dark place to walk away from us and say, find a flashlight. No, Jesus brings us to these moments, not to abandon us, but to work in us to prove himself powerful for us. And it's true, not just of dark times. It's true of everything he's called us to. It's especially true of the mission of God that he has given to you and to me. Maybe you hesitate to live on mission. You you hesitate to share the gospel and to love your neighbor. You you hesitate to practice hospitality with your, your unbelieving coworker because you're intimidated. It's intimidating to start a gospel conversation with someone. I'm the first one to admit that. It's intimidating to to invite someone into your home because, well, what if my home's not clean enough? What if my my home is too loud? What if my kids are too crazy? What if the dog barks? What if I burn the food? What if, what if, what if? But we forget through all of that that Jesus doesn't call us to be obedient once we have a perfect plan. Jesus calls us to obedient trust that what he calls us to, he equips us to do. So so Jesus didn't call you to to share the gospel and say, figure it out. No, Jesus called you to be a disciple maker and that as you make disciples, he's going to work in you and through you to give you exactly what you need. Do you know that Jesus has given given you everything you need 
to be a disciple maker right now, whether you've been following Jesus for 10 minutes or 10 years. He's given you everything you need. He's given you his Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, and he's given you his perfect word. You, you've got everything you need. You say, I, I want to live on mission. I, I want to practice this hospitality that, that Jesus does, but, but I don't know where to begin. You might not know where to begin, but Jesus does. Right? Jesus does. And, and so Jesus, he, he calls us, and he doesn't abandon us. He works in us, and he works through us. And we see him do that here in this passage. So we see this great need and this great problem. And then finally, what Jesus is going to show us is that he is a greater prophet. He's a greater prophet. So he's not just showing his power, but he's revealing his identity. He can meet our needs with his power because he's the greater prophet who doesn't just deliver God's message. Jesus is God himself. There's something important happening here. Now, when we read this story, maybe if you've ever been to a vacation Bible school, you have heard the feeding of the 5,000. You've heard this story. And this story is to show us Jesus's power, but it doesn't end there. See, if you read the, all of Luke 9, you, you read this section, then what you see is right before this story, Herod is confused by Jesus. He starts asking, is Jesus... Is he John the Baptist who I beheaded come back? I've heard rumblings that maybe he's the prophet Elijah. And then Luke plants this story right here. Then a little, a little later on in Luke 9, there's the transfiguration and Moses and Elijah come down. And so Jesus, obviously, he's not Moses and he's not Elijah, but he's better. So look at verse 15. Verse 14, Jesus has told them to, to sit them down in groups of about 50 each. Verse 15, and they did so and had them all sit down. Now, I love this because the disciples, they finally don't mess it up, right? Jesus gives instructions and they do it. Jesus gives instructions and they don't say, what kind of tablecloth should we use? They don't say, we don't have enough napkins. No, Jesus said, have them sit down in groups of 50. Yes, sir. But whatever you say, Jesus. Now, the disciples know what Jesus was going to do. I don't think so. And I think what's so wonderful about this is that their obedience comes before their understanding. They didn't need to know, Jesus, what are you going to do? And then we'll do it. No, they just said, okay. I wonder if this is how we respond to Jesus. Do we respond to Jesus with humble obedience even when we don't understand it? See, understand this. Our obedience does not force God to work. But our obedience is the soil where we see God's power most clearly. And so as we practice obedience, as we, we live obedient lives, what we do is we have opportunity more and more and more to see God's power work, to see God move in strength. And that's what happens here. The disciples are obedient. They still have questions, but they're obedient. And then look at verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So Jesus takes what they have, he blesses it, and he starts passing it out. Now, just imagine this scene in your mind. Jesus breaks the bread 
He starts passing out the bread. He starts dividing out the fish and the food never stops. It's like Mary Poppins' bag, right? Things just keep coming. And what's happening here is we're not just seeing his power, but, but we're getting a picture of his identity. See, this isn't the first time that God's people have been fed in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, Moses has led Israel out of Egypt. He's led them out of slavery. He's led them out of bondage. And what happens? Israel doesn't say, thank you, Lord, for delivering us. They start grumbling. They start complaining. Church people have been the same for years, right? Uh, They start complaining. and, And what happens is Moses goes before the Lord, and the Lord doesn't say, I can't believe these people. No, what does he What does he do? He says, I'm going to provide for them. And manna starts raining down from heaven. And each day they're to collect what they need. If they take anything extra, it's going to spoil. It's going to go bad. Here, what we have is we have Jesus doing something similar but better. See, in Exodus 16, God provides manna in the desert from heaven. In Luke 9, Jesus provides food in the desolate place from his hand. Right, this, this bread and this fish, it doesn't rain from heaven, but it comes from Jesus. The, the one who provided for Israel then is still providing for his people now. Well, what he's showing us here is that he is not just a prophet. He is greater. He is the true prophet. He's the final prophet. He is Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so he's providing for his people. In verse 17, we see what this feast looks like. They all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus provides this feast. The, the people are satisfied. I've, I've read this story more times than I can count. I've taught this story. That something jumped out to me this time, and it's not just that there are leftovers, but there is more food at the end of the meal than there was at the beginning. And it's not because someone forgot the casserole in the oven, right? Maybe you've, you've had that happen where sit down, everyone eats, and then someone says, oh, I forgot there's something else in the oven, and they bring it back out, and you think, I shouldn't, but I will because I don't want to be rude, right? And so uh, that's not what happens here. No, Jesus provides, and there's more at the end than there was at the beginning. See, what this is... If you keep reading, you read to the end of the book, what you see is that this is a foretaste of heaven. See, there's a day coming when God's people will feast with Jesus, be welcomed at his table, and be fully and finally satisfied. Where Jesus will welcome us and the welcome will never end. See, what happened here in Luke 9 is the people were satisfied, but that satisfaction would wear off. Right, that they were full, they probably thought we could never eat again. I think it's probably similar to if you look at John 2, Jesus does the, his first miracle at Cana. He, he turns the water into wine, and they tell him, this is the best wine we've ever drank. It's probably the best bread and the best fish that these, these people have ever eaten. They're satisfied. They're, they're, they've eaten their fill, but what we know is they're going to be hungry again. What we know is is they're going to be looking for food again. We've experienced this. We think I could never eat again. A couple hours later, like, I could try a piece of pie. I could could try something else. 
right? They're satisfied, but ultimately they're, they're going to be hungry again. But one day, one day God's people will be welcomed by Jesus around his table. And we'll be welcomed around Jesus and we will eat a feast that Jesus has prepared and we'll be fully and finally satisfied. We'll be fully and finally welcomed with a welcome that never ends. And because of that, we should be compelled to practice radical hospitality. Why should we be compelled to practice radical hospitality? Because if you have trusted Christ, then you have experienced abundant hospitality. You've experienced the radical hospitality of Jesus. We should be compelled to, to welcome sinners into our lives, to, to welcome unbelievers into our homes, to, to welcome people around our table because that is what Jesus has done for us. He's welcomed us to his table and he invites anyone and everyone who would to come. And how does he invite anyone and everyone who would to come? Jesus invites others to his table through our lives that he invites us to invite others to this feast, to this table. See, the way that we reach our neighbors is not new. We, we live in a, a kind of a new moment in the history of our world. Our, our world's constantly changing. And, and, and what we know is that the way that we're gonna reach our neighbors the way that we're gonna reach our loved ones who need to know Jesus, that it's not through a new gospel presentation. It's not through a new tool. It's not through a new strategy or a new method. It's through something really old. It's through welcoming them to our table. It's going back to the way Jesus practiced evangelism. It's welcoming them into our lives, which is really inconvenient. It's really inconvenient to welcome people into your life. You know why it's really inconvenient? Because authenticity is hard, right? It's hard when, when someone comes to my house and they hear the pastor say, I will kill you if you touch your brother again, right? Uh, I will take you out, right? Authenticity is hard. But what we know is that God uses authenticity and vulnerability to change people. And it's not because there's something power about, powerful about our vulnerability. It's not because there's something powerful about our authenticity, but it's because there is something wonderful about the grace of Jesus. Right? When people see, oh man, they need grace. They don't have it all together. Right? They... they This Jesus that they talk about, he's not just an idea, he's a person. His grace isn't just a concept, his grace is an experience. And when people see and when people know that, that you have experienced grace, well, then it makes that grace attractive. It, it makes Jesus attractive. So this is why we're taking time to look at being around the table with Jesus. Because as he's welcomed us, he calls us to welcome others. And that might make you really nervous. That's okay. You might think I could never do that. Remember, Jesus hasn't brought you here to abandon you. 
Now, he, he meets your need with his power, not your ability, not your resources, not this or that, but simply with his power. That's what we need. If we want to practice that daily, ordinary, simple obedience, what we need is the power of Jesus in our lives. How do we get the power of Jesus in our lives? Ordinary daily obedience. Right, that if you have trusted Christ, and he has saved you, and he has given you his spirit to live and work inside of you. Well, the Bible says we can quench the spirit. And so maybe the reason we don't experience this power is because we walk in daily disobedience rather than daily obedience. It doesn't mean that we've lost what Jesus has given us. It just means that we've watered it down. Right? It means that we need to be reminded of the power of Jesus, the, the power of his spirit at work and alive inside of us. That's what we need. In other words, what we need is we need to be satisfied by Jesus and by nothing else. We need to be like the people here that they were satisfied. They walk away from Jesus and they are satisfied. They, they spend time with Jesus and they are satisfied. See, that's the trick to radical hospitality. The secret to radical hospitality is to be satisfied by Jesus. Because when we're satisfied by Jesus, we want to follow Jesus. We want to do what Jesus has called us to do. And whenever we do what Jesus has called us to do, that means that we walk into the inconvenient. We walk into the difficult. We, we walk into the hard. And so the question this morning is not, are you practicing radical hospitality? The question this morning is, are you satisfied by Jesus? Because when you're satisfied by Jesus, ordinary obedience is natural. Ordinary obedience happens. And so are, are, are you satisfied by Jesus this morning? Maybe the reason you're not satisfied by Jesus is because you've been feasting at the wrong table. Maybe you're not satisfied by Jesus because you've been looking in the wrong places. But Jesus, what he does this morning is he doesn't say, hey, once you've got it together, you're welcome. No, he says, you who are messed up, you who are tired, you who are broken, you're welcome even now. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing and, and maybe, maybe as we sing, we're gonna sing a hymn, Jesus paid it all. Because we believe that he didn't pay some of it, he paid all of it. And so maybe as we, we sing that, maybe you need to pray and you need to confess, Lord, I've been trying to do this in my own power. I've been trying to do this in my own strength. God, I need your grace. I need your power. I need you to free me from my addiction to myself and satisfy me with you. Or maybe, maybe this morning you... You're here and you've been looking for satisfaction in all these places. You've been looking in satisfaction for satisfaction in every place but in Jesus. Well, this morning, what we've seen is that real satisfaction only comes through Him. And so rather than looking in this place or that place, He's calling you to look to Him. If that's you, maybe for the first time you need to trust in Christ or you need someone to pray with you, you need to talk to someone at the end of this service. You'll see people with yellow shirts all around. They'll be down front. There'll be some in our lobby. You can grab one of them and say, hey, I should need to talk to someone. I need to pray with someone. I need to have a conversation.
and they, they know what to do. Would you pray with me now? Father, we, we are so grateful for the satisfaction that you offer us in Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful for your power and your grace and your spirit that works in us. And Father, we are grateful that we have been welcomed to the table. And Father, I pray that as we sit at your table, that we would recognize the satisfaction that you offer. Father, I pray that as we sit at your table, that you would increasingly make us love the inconvenient. Father, for those who have never taken a seat at the table, Father, I pray that today is the day that they would do just that. Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name.